Uh, everyone, welcome to episode 43 of Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy down here, Vlad. We are exceptionally excited to kick off the evolution of control systems theme uh, with, with Benson Hoagland of Opto22. We want to like to thank Opto22 for sponsoring this theme and generally for your fantastic support of the entire uh, of the entire community. So Benson, without further ado, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Dave and Vlad, and it's 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 great to be back. Um, uh, I, I obviously I follow your show uh, every episode. You guys had some terrific guests uh, covering a wide range of topics that I, I feel like the you know the community is getting a lot out of it. Um, and and to that end, I I, I want to say and I'll say it I've said it before I'll say it again. Uh, this is what our industry needs. This it has needed for some time, and you guys have put it together. And uh, you know a few others have have done this uh, have done the same thing. I just think it's, you know, especially in the time of, uh, of COVID, of course, and we don't have that, uh, you know, ability to, to, to make, meet each other at a trade show. I remember the first time I met you, Dave, it was uh, in mm -hmm. Chicago and, mm -hmm. uh, and Vlad the same, you know, it was, it, it was a person in person event and we don't have that right now. Uh, and so this for sure fills that void, but it also fills, in my opinion, another void. And that is just this opportunity for us in the community to share. To share what we know, to share what we think we know, <laughs> uh, to have those assumptions challenged uh, and 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 talked about in in these types of forums, I think it's it's fantastic because you know sometimes we all get locked into our our job. We got to get the machine running, we got to get the plant up, or we got to do this, or we got to do that. And sometimes it's good just to take a break from that for you know a few minutes in a day or whatever, and and learn something. And uh, so kudos to you guys uh, for season two. Uh, happy to be uh, with you again. Absolutely. Thank really you. appreciate the, the kind comments, Benson. I, I believe that we can all learn from each other. I think there's, you know, a thousand different ways that any given task could be accomplished. And it's mm -hmm. very important to look at others who have been there or are doing it in uh, in a certain different way to at least, you know, start the conversations, be able to figure out how to do something better on your own. Because again, I think controls and electrical engineering, engineering is in general is a <laughs> large field but there's not that many people i would say in a in a typical engineering team from the controls side right so it could be mm -hmm. uh, a feeling of being just on your own in in certain environments for sure but right. um the last time we spoke to you we talked a lot about your background how you got into opto 22 what was what were some of the challenges you know how you progressed through the company what you're working on today um, and today we wanted to shift that a little bit, but obviously expand on your experience because you've worked with various protocols, you've worked with a lot of different hardware, you've worked with different software, and you've seen how control systems have gone through, you know, a change from very basic, I would say, relays, transistors, mechanical relays, and we'll we'll get get into that, uh, obviously, but. We want to get your perspective on, you know, how that shift happened. And I think even more importantly, why it happened and where did it lead us today? And what uh, what do you think we have in store in the future? So if you want to give us a maybe short synopsis, and I, I think Dave actually wanted to uh, give us a short reintroduction uh, of your background. So for those who maybe uh, who haven't listened to the previous episode could get a, a better idea first, but we'll get into the uh the history in just a moment 
Absolutely. So a brief intro, and if you guys want to learn more about Benson, we absolutely suggest uh, listening to the first episode where we talk very much in depth about it. But the very brief uh, intro is Benson uh, kind of started his career working on IT. Uh, he was building some computers. At some point, he kind of ran into, uh, into a now friend and at that point uh, did some work in control systems, which led him down this terrible path that everyone will know is industrial automation. He then left uh, working on the IT side. I believe you sold a business um, and that eventually led you into controls. And then you ran across this crazy company, Opto22. And then at, at some point moved up in Opto22, left the great state of Utah and have moved to Southern California where you've been with Opto22 for more than 20 years, correct, Benson? Yeah, this will mark uh, my 27th year at Opto. And uh, in uh, roughly 30 years uh, exposure to the product. So yeah, wow. indeed. That, and that, I, well, I was going to say, so um, as we went and we're, we're talking about this theme, I think that Opto 22 and you're the, the best person we can possibly have because the history of Opto 22 is very much the history of literally the evolution of control systems because you guys started originally manufacturing Realize, and you still manufacture Realize. Well, we do indeed. I mean, the company was founded uh, uh, by Bob Bingman, and uh, Bob Bingman was uh, you know, a graduate of the University of Utah, electrical engineer, uh, started working at Westinghouse, and was the co-inventor of the solid state relay. And if we look at you know the importance of, uh, and I'll just pop a picture up here of, uh, of that uh, solid state relay, it's right there. That's a newer version, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I actually have a, a version of the uh, original. Uh, there you can see it, uh, the Optrol, and that's a different story. We, the company was named actually Optrol for about six months before uh, we were asked to change that name by Philip 66. So a story for another time. But actually, uh, one element of that story, just very briefly, is sometimes we get asked, well, where's the 22 come from? And indeed, when we changed the name from the uh, from Optrol, which was optically isolated control, we're talking about a solid state relay here. Uh, we, you know, had all of our relays that we're selling back in 1974 uh, lying around on a conference room table. And uh, the founders got together and said, "Well, what are we going to call ourselves now?" And it wasn't as easy as jumping on Google or you know going to the uh, USPTO.org website and seeing if a name was taken. So they said, well, there's 22 relays. How about Opto 22? Nobody's going to have that. <laughs> and it's stuck. So uh, that's, uh, that's where it comes from. But indeed, that's our, our history is, uh, is, is first uh, this, this notion of, you know, if we look back and, and this is the evolution of control systems, not necessarily PLCs, but mm -hmm. at, the, at the time, mm -hmm. PLCs were really making a, a mark in the industry, particularly in automotive and so on. And that's, you know, of course, where the term relay ladder logic comes from, you know, this notion of a bunch of relays that are, you know, basically hanging up on a wall and they're wired together and based on the electrical flow and you get some, you know, some outcome, right? So that's what essentially the control was. And while relays handled that task pretty, pretty well, and of course, once a, a machine or something was running with this relay ladder logic, you'd hear a bunch of clickety clacks. All around, click, 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 click. The whole thing would just be you know, a bunch of noise of mechanical relays opening and closing. And, and indeed, a mechanical relay will fail. It's not if it will fail, 
it's that it will fail. And so the idea behind the solid state relay was what if we could do the same, but with light, right? Instead of a mechanical relay. And indeed that, that is what a solid state relay is at its very fundamental core is this notion of changing the flow of electricity or energizing a larger load from say a smaller voltage. So at first it was like you see on the screen here, the 120 volt uh, AC control driving a much larger load. Uh, but today it could be some very low voltage uh, load that you're, you know, a low voltage will switch a, a very high voltage load. But when you think about solid state relays, that's really about outputs, right? I'm gonna use a, maybe a small voltage to control a large output and I'm gonna do it in a solid state fashion so it'll last forever. Uh, indeed, our solid state relays, even today, are guaranteed for life. If they ever fail, we'll replace them. Uh, and that solid state relay that's on the screen right now is one of the originals and still passes all of our 100% uh, load tests uh, to this day uh, because they, they just don't fail. And, uh, but again, it's an output. I want to I you know, change a load, turn on or off a load, whatever. But then we started getting the idea of, and now we're starting to get, you know, evolve from the solid state relay. And where does that go? Well, it kind of goes into the next thing we built, which were these little relays that not only did outputs, but also could sense a load, right? So we could wire it up to a load and determine whether the load was on or off. So now we have IO and we're bringing that data, you know, basic, we'll bring that information basically into a printed circuit board of some sort. And uh, this, this G1 IO that's up, up on the screen now was also the advent of that color sequence that we designed early on. Black is an AC output, white is a DC input, yellow is an AC input, and red is a DC output. And that kind of stuck. And this was you know, back in 1978 uh, that we did this. And then we kind of were working with a, a, a small company at the time, but it ended up being a very large company, Intel. And Intel had a single board computer. And they said, well, wouldn't it be great if this single board computer, and this is way before PCs, uh, what if the single board computer could read out that information and do outputs? Could we have computer-based control? And indeed, uh, we decided to take a, a concept of that and built something called uh, you know, basically digital IO. And this is our generation four. But the idea behind a product like this was that it could actually interface to the single board computer over a parallel bus. So now you've got this, you know, uh, NCR, digital cash register, all kinds of companies started, you know, turning things on and off and sensing whether they were on and off. You know, yes, we had PLCs at the time, but they were primarily in automotive and in other applications. This could work anywhere. And uh, so, you know, we moved a lot of a lot of IO modules, and we still make these same IO modules today. Uh, they're still guaranteed for life, uh, the whole nine yards. And I've got a little surprise for you coming up later in the evolution about where we still use these exact same uh, same modules. And then we realized, you know, the problem with parallel bus is they have a lot of uh, noise induction. So what we did was we said, you know what? What if we were to put this on a serial network? That way, it'd be somewhat noise immune and then use an adapter card in a PC to actually communicate or a single board computer and communicate to a, really a, a, a co-processor, a communications processor. So parallel bus was terrific, very, very fast, induced noise, but a serial RS-485 would reject noise. So now I can start spreading this around wherever I need it and come back to a computer of some sort, some logic solving 
you know, processor, a CPU. And this is an important uh, kind of a watershed moment. And we're talking about it right around the 1982-1983 timeframe. Because what happened here is that if you put stuff out on a serial network, you're going to have a problem with speed. It's not going to be as fast as a parallel bus, right? So that's that communications coprocessor that allowed us to put that information over a serial network. We realized we have to take some time-sensitive functions and keep them at the I.O. Now, if you think about that, that's kind of a fundamentals of distributed control. So you have a PC that may be making decisions, but time sensitive, like latching, a, and if an input goes high, be able to latch that. So when I go to read it, I know it occurred and I don't miss it. You know, in a scan-based environment, that's what everybody always cared about. How fast is your scan time? I don't want to miss an event. So I think what we if take we a lot of those interrupts for, uh, for granted at this, uh, at this point, right? Because it's much easier to set them up. But back then, mm -hmm. it must have been a really complex... Uh, question right with the with the early protocols especially sorry to, right. to interrupt this no no please please do and, and it's, the, it's the discussion so that was kind of you know and the reason why i think this is important today looking back is that as we move forward and i saw some of the comments on the on the linkedin post for this event was you know what about cloud computing and control in the cloud and we'll get to it but when you think about that you start to recognize that there are certain functions that should happen in certain places. And that's kind of what we, we dealt with here. Not only that, but maybe computers weren't entirely reliable, right? If a XT computer failed, uh-oh, there goes your whole control system. But with a distributed environment like this, those interrupts, those watchdogs and things happen at the IO level. And it allows you to, uh, to, you know, to uh, you know, hopefully recover from uh, a down computer or something like that. Uh, and of course, that was facilitated by, you know, PC cards, cards that literally fit, you know, fit into the backplane of a computer. And then that would, uh, you know, that could be serial communications, could be parallel or whatever. But again, this notion of an XT computer was great for word processing, crunching numbers, but, but controls, could we count on it? Uh, and indeed, we were we questioned whether an off-the-shelf, you know, PC could do this, even though, you know, we were kind of the leaders of PC-based control back then. So we decided to say, well, what if we took the CPU out of a standard PC of some sort and actually put it in a controller, in an industrial controller? And indeed, our first controllers had the 68020 microprocessor, 32-bit microprocessor that was the same one that was being put in the Macintosh computer. So it's not a, really a conversation about opto per se. It's simply that okay, here's an available CPU, here's an available network interface. How do we take some of these technologies and start to put them together to solve problems? Uh, and and that's, that's all we've really done here. We, we put a, a, a PC-based CPU into an industrial box, had it talking to that intelligent remote IO, uh, and then people started building control systems with that. And this is about the era that I, I started to get involved. And then we also found that, you know, we started doing analog as well. So you, know, you start looking at digital signals, but you know, today's applications are a lot of analog, a lot of signals, a lot of serial, a lot of protocols. And so you start to have to look at other kinds of control languages to be able to deal with all that data. Uh, and so back in the you know, early 90s, we had a flowchart based software that was really kind of that next step to say, well, I need to incorporate a lot of different types of signals and then do something interesting with that data. Now at the time, of course, relay ladder logic, 
absolutely hands down. It was the way that uh, that people programmed. So, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll intersperse into this evolution is that there are some times when Opto was off on this track uh, or doing, you know, doing flowchart software, but the market wasn't ready for it or they, they didn't really understand it. And, uh, you know, we've had this software for, you know, 30 some odd years now uh, and it's, it's terrific software, but some people like to program differently. And, and I, it's a good time to bring up, I, I love Jeff Winter's post and he was a guest on your show. Mm -hmm. uh, and he talked about, you know, people, processes and technology. Just because the technology is there doesn't mean the people are ready. And perhaps even if the people are, the processes aren't, aren't in place just yet. Uh, and so, you know, through our evolution and some of the things I'm talking about, the, those weren't always necessarily the best path. I mean, it's still terrific software and people who use it love it and use it all the time. But for the most part, there's a lot of people who have, you know, their way of they like to do things and more on that uh, in, a, in a little bit. And then for anybody who's been around as long as, you know, some of us have in the mid nineties, the big rage was of course, Windows HMIs. So now Windows is now at version, uh, what, 3.0. And suddenly you've got software companies like Intolution and, and, and Wonderware and I Iconics and some that are still, I think Iconics is still around, but uh, the others have been swallowed up in one way or another. Actually, now I think about it, Iconics has as well. But this was all the rage. What if we could use Windows to provide a graphical view into what was happening inside a plant? Uh, and so this was a, a big step because it allowed people now to take control systems, whether they were PLCs or PC-based control or even DCS, and bring them into a view that people could interact with uh, and do it on a essentially an off-the-shelf computer, PC, running Windows software. And that kind of led to the next big you know, evolution in our industry in the 90s was, there was a lot of innovation going on and a lot of interesting things happening. But once the data started to come into Windows, now how do we get it somewhere else? And that's where we uh, decided to work with a company called Microsoft, of course it's still around, and a few other companies that are not. And the five of us worked on something called Olay for Process Control. And the idea was simply to say, okay, if the data is coming into a Windows computer, how can we share that with other applications, other peripheral, peripherals or whatever? And we adopted the Windows printer driver model. And in, a, in essence, what that meant is that if we had a spec that we could write to, hardware manufacturers would write to that spec, plug it into a Windows environment, and be able to share the data with other systems. That was Olay for Process Control, which later was named OPC, and today we all know it as uh, OPC UA. The very first draft spec of the OPC spec was done in this building because you know, we've been here since 1991. And uh, this was in 1996 when the, the spec was ratified. So that was a, a big moment as well. And, and I think an important part of the evolution of control systems that we're still taking advantage of today. So that kind of led us into the next thing. Well, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is while ethernet was somewhat popular, there were a lot of other options, a lot of proprietary bus protocols, for example, data highway, blue hose, call it what you want. Um, and there was, you know, serial networks, of course, which were not proprietary, but sometimes the protocols running on those were. So what if we could, you know, somehow take in ethernet as a way of moving this data around? Uh, and, and in other words, instead of the, the physical medium 
and the protocol combined into one thing, what if we put everything on ethernet? Then we'd have a standard copper physical interface and put other protocols on top of that and allow again, this the sharing of data. So ethernet was a pretty big deal for us um, uh, early on, uh, early nineties. And then we even took it all the way to the IO level uh, in 1998 uh, with ethernet IO. And ethernet IO, 1998, what an interesting time. <laughs> it was a time when basically the entire industry said to us, we don't know what you guys are smoking down there in California, but there's no chance that ethernet will ever make it to the plant floor. And of course, we, we all know how that ended up. Um, but ethernet wasn't, wasn't the panacea, okay? It wasn't the you know, keys to the kingdom. What rode on top of ethernet was, and this is probably a hard thing to see on, on the graphic, but in short, it's TCP IP. It's the TCP IP protocol that really was the big fundamental shift because even in the 90s, mid 90s, the Windows computer, they were using NetBuoy and, and some were using NetBIOS and some were using NetWare. There were all these different kinds of protocols that were running on ethernet and TCP IP finally rose to the top largely as we start to learn later, uh, the, uh, the World Wide Web, the internet and so on. So TCP became, TCP IP became, in my opinion, the dial tone that would run over Ethernet or any supported physical medium, whether it and was if someone doesn't Wi-Fi. know what a, sorry to interrupt again, Benson. Right. If someone doesn't know what a <laughs> dial tone is, you know, I, I'm still, I guess, old enough to know what, uh, what that sounded like. Could you paint us a, a better picture maybe of the dial tone and how it correlates to TCP IP? Yeah, sure. I mean, a phone is a physical medium, but when you pick up the, and we're talking old school here, when you pick up the phone, the first thing you listen for before you dial any numbers is a dial tone. And that indicates that you have some connection to where once you punch, punch the numbers in or start communicating, you know, you have a connection to somewhere. And that's why I've always said, you know, the TCP IP is like the dial tone of, of ethernet networking, Wi-Fi, and now in many, many other types of networks, even satellite comms. Um, and that, and the interesting thing about that it was, it was TCP/IP was a dial tone, but the beauty of that is that I could put a bunch of other protocols, what are called application protocols, on top of TCP/IP. So in the pink box, probably hard to see again, but SMTP, which is email, FTP, file transfer, MQTT, developed in 1999 by my good friend uh, Arlen Nepper. Uh, same thing uh, over TCP/IP, uh, DNS. SNMP, here's an example where by putting the TCP IP stack on an Ethernet IO system, turning on SNMP, because it's just another part of the stack, turn on SNMP, suddenly all uh, the Ethernet IO systems were put on 10,000 cell towers across the US, strictly for monitoring them back to a, uh, a network operating system. In this case, it was computer associates, but it could have been HP OpenView, SNMP was an important protocol in IT for monitoring printers, databases, IT equipment. But now they could use that same protocol on an industrial IO system. And that's, uh, again, I think another big watershed moment, kind of a, a sea change in the evolution of control, system, control systems by being able to utilize some of these you know, capabilities that are built right into TCP IP. Uh, and, and indeed, the protocol right. itself, if, if I may add, Benson, also became mm -hmm. much quicker, right? So we went through the iteration, and I certainly don't know the 
history of Ethernet IP to quote the exact speed numbers, but it's become mm-hmm. quite a lot faster, right, since uh, the last couple of decades. And it certainly allowed us, again, going back to your example mm-hmm. of uh, hardware interrupts, it allowed us to be a lot more deterministic with the data, right? The same kind of uh, story that we had with maybe having way too much I.O. on a single serial port. Now Ethernet allowed us to do that with uh, with the innovation that it has gone through. Yeah, and, and you bring up uh, an excellent point and also uh, another point that I didn't quite describe, but I think it is, is meaningful now. When Ethernet came out, the Ethernet IO product for Opto and others were doing Ethernet as well, uh, one of the reasons why they said this will never work is because it was only 10 megabits per second. And it worked with a technology called hubs, meaning it was a completely shared medium. Anybody who had access to the wire could communicate. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that people said, well, this will never work. But here's the thing. We knew that there was a lot of research and development in the notion of Ethernet just by itself for IT networks to make them faster, to make them deterministic, to make them everything that we needed them to be. Uh, and that's an advantage of in this evolution. If we're, if we're adopting technologies that may be outside of our industry and pulling them into our industry, and, and figure out how that can help solve a problem. The other byproduct of that is we've got these massive companies, Cisco, 3Com, you know, these are companies back in the time that were all about ethernet. They are investing millions of dollars in these technologies, in just, you know, Cisco switches or ethernet uh, 3Com cards that fit into your PC and so on. We benefit from that. Our industry benefits from that. And I think that's an important distinction rather than a vendor like Opto having to invent everything. Well, wait a minute, Let's. there's a lot of innovation out there. How can we pull some of that innovation in, uh, into our industry and, and solve problems with it? So, you know, then we kind of got into a period where, uh-oh, oh, we, we suddenly want to move this data now everywhere on wide area networks. And this captured the interest of a company called Nokia, uh, who you know used to be the largest handset manufacturer in the world by a huge margin, um, based in Finland, and they came to Opto and they said, "Hey, what we want to do is take a SIM card and a radio and put it on an I/O system." And we thought, "Wow, okay, that's an interesting idea. Let's go with this." Here's an example of of evolution or technology that might be available for us to put on our systems that was just too early. The technology was relatively sound, pretty slow speeds and so on. The people were kind of getting, you know, this idea of being able to look at large areas and use a cellular network. But we're talking about 2002 here. And the carriers, they weren't ready. They, and so the processes broke down. It was so hard to get a SIM card and put that onto a device and get a plan or whatever. It just, it broke down. So if those three pillars aren't in place, the technology adoption probably won't happen. Uh, so we've seen that before. And we even came out with a product and, you know, I, I'm responsible for product strategy here to a large degree, working very closely with engineering. And, uh, you know, I've had my, my set of failures. And one of them was a, a product we called NVO, Network Virtualized I.O. And uh, it was just too early to market. You know, spent a lot of time, a lot of money, uh, tried to bring this thing to market, and, uh, and it failed. So, you know, I think failure is important. I think the, the ability to go out there and do something new, try to bring these technologies in to solve a given problem, 
doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be, you know, a, a, a huge success. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Because we learned a lot through that, that process. And that's, you know, one of the things I love about working with Opto, they give me a lot of rope. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's good because it allows us to really, uh, to really innovate. What kind of data real, were they sending yeah. over the cellular networks? I'm, I'm just curious about the mm -hmm. project. I don't know if you can share some more details, but at the time, uh, I'm just oh, curious boy. what they were sending. Oh, think of, you know, a, a Coke machine, knowing to when, or, when I need to, uh, you know, refill a Coke machine that may be at a 7-Eleven or something, rather than having a guy driving around a truck full of Cokes and, you know, seeing if the machine needed any. What if there was a device inside the machine that would sense that and then send a message back and say, oh, this machine needs refill or propane tanks, or we were already doing the cellular towers. That was part of it as well. So it was mostly telemetry type applications, gotcha. right? Data acquisition, remote monitoring, not control. Uh, it really wasn't much control in the, in the very early phases of M2M. -M, there really wasn't any of that. And, and M2M is, you know, it, this is ar an arguable point, but a lot of people kind of consider M2M -M the, the precursor to what we call IoT today or industrial IoT um, and not so much digital transformation, but the technology of internet connectivity. So well, that's what it sounds a, like, right? It, it mm -hmm. just sounds IoT, but more like B2B type of a, of a system. Correct. Maybe again, like the costs or just per device uh, connectivity was not as cheap as it is today with the ethernet right. connection being so readily available. So that makes sense. And today the speeds are much faster. I mean, when we put all those things on cell towers back in the year 2000, we literally did them over Motorola bag phones, you know, using the a, a GP, well, it was even before GPRS, it was the AMP network. Uh, so there was a need to do this, but it was still very difficult to do. Uh, again, people, processes, and technology coming together. But one technology that was pretty big shift for all of us, I think, uh, at many levels uh, was absolutely Linux. And now we're still, you know, in, in that early 2000s timeframe, what's really starting to grab, grab hold. And, and uh, you know, if, if you think about the history of Linux, there's a lot of different, uh, a lot of debate about why it was created. But clearly one of the reasons was Microsoft stranglehold on the desktop, right? How, why am I paying these exorbitant licenses for this OS and for the applications and, and so on? What if we had a free OS that would do, do all this stuff? And, and indeed, it was, a, it was a lofty goal, but the beauty of, of Linux, especially being open source, was you had a lot of people involved in, that, uh, in developing that software. And we think that this was a, a really important time, not just for industrial, because frankly, it took a little longer to get into the industrial world. But you know, if you had your set-top box, your DVR, that ran Linux. You know, if you look at the seat back on your airplane and watching a movie, that is, is Linux. And, you know, there's Microsoft did try to get into the game with embedded Windows and Windows CE and even later Windows IoT, IoT and, yep. and so on. But, you know, frankly, the, the, the Linux got uh, really deep down into that notion of, uh, of embedded compute. Uh, and it would run on, you know, a, a lot smaller processors than what was required. Uh, by the you know Windows Intel juggernaut, so that was uh, that was really an important part, and I think an important part for the evolution of where I believe that will be going long term. And then once we start, you know, think about Linux uh, in another way. What if if you were to count how many processors have been sold for the Raspberry Pi? I'm sure we all have heard of Raspberry Pi. 
it's it's a Linux based OS. It's a thirty five dollar computer. Yeah, you probably got one right behind you. Yep. They're, <laughs> it's they're running. It's running Linux. Yep. And uh, and people didn't do that because they wanted to run a desktop software. Some did. Some did. But most people were doing it because they wanted to learn programming or they wanted to learn how they could integrate with other systems. This small, very cheap computer became an incredible tool. And there's a couple of uh, technologies that made that uh, really popular. And one of them was RESTful APIs, this notion of being able to connect to other systems. And that was somewhat you know, fundamentally uh, facilitated by a, a software called Node-RED developed by IBM, put into the open source, like MQTT was developed by Arlen Nipper and IBM, uh, Dr. Andy Stanford-Clark, uh, and put into the open source. So now we have, you know, you're starting to see full circle how now we've got software that can run on a given, you know, open platform of some sort of CPU arm. It could be, you know, x86, could be whatever, you know, Intel. Um, but at this point, now we're starting to have software unleash the potential of that CPU. That's the key. You know, we've built a lot of products uh, with our tosses, you know, real-time operating systems on custom silicon. Uh, we've done that a lot. We, we've used Intel, we've used uh, you know, Motorola, we've used a lot of different CPUs um, with an RTOS on it. And, and it's been very powerful for us. I mean, we have customers running applications all over the world with it, but it's a finite landscape. I can only do so much. So when we decided that we wanted to move to platforms like Linux and, and use some of these other tools, what we found is a lot of breathing room. Let's get the task done at hand, reliably in an industrial package. You can count on it to work all the time, but it gave us room to say, okay, what's next? What can we look at uh, down the road? And the timing couldn't really be better. I mean, with all the talk about digital transformation, now you've got a way of democratizing data using the software on that kind of silicon, open silicon and open OSs. So that's been pretty interesting. And then it kind of came again, full circle, reaching back you know, to MQTT, which was design, you know, created in 1999, but now with you know, Arlen Nipper and uh, SiriusLink Solutions, they got the spark plug payload specification for MQTT. And now you're seeing this, the uptake of, of these, of MQTT with Sparkplug has been remarkable over the past several years. Not to say that it hasn't been without a lot of effort. Arlen's team has been working on this since 2007. Uh, so they, you know, they've been, you know, when that moved into the open source and then uh, 2014 is when, I think it was 2014 when SiriusLink got together. But my point behind this is it solves real problems relative to cybersecurity, relative to data democratization, um, and uh, you know, you've got other, uh, other elements, other software companies, um, other hardware manufacturers, you know, starting to implement these same protocols. So now we can actually build an ecosystem. You know, you look back to OPC, what we're trying to do, now we're doing it with MQTT, with Sparkplug, and allowing systems to start inter interoperate. And there's other, you know, we're not the only ones. That, PLC Next, a great example. I love what those guys are doing. Yeah, they're a competitor, but, you know, they have the same train of thought. How can we take these kinds of technologies and products and put them together to address the problems that we face in, in our industry for democratizing data and securing systems? So, indeed, that's been a, a pretty important one. And then just because we love Raspberry Pi so much, uh, we actually made a board. This probably looks similar to the Optimux from the 80s. 
It's the same IO, the same board, but we built a Pi carrier board. So you can put your Pi right on top of that thing and the Pi does all the control. I wouldn't put this in a, you know, uh, uh, an industrial environment uh, for long-term controls, but we have a lot of people doing this outside of industrial automation. Uh, and it's, it's pretty cool. But again, showing the power of, you know, silicon CPUs that you can get from anywhere. And then once you got the CPU, you got the OS, now I can start running other interesting software on the same box. And that's why we worked with Ignition uh, and we're, uh, you know, the first company to, uh, to ship a product with Ignition Edge on board where, you know, these devices next to me here are running Ignition Edge and they're running a lot, you know, Node-RED, they're running all this stuff because each of those software things, it's like an app on your phone, right? You got a, a phone, it could be an Android, it could be an Apple, it doesn't really matter, but it has all this software and you choose the software based on the application or based on what you want to do. Why can't industrial systems you know, be something like that? Why can't they borrow some of those ideas? And that's what you know, these systems are doing. Some of our competitors, of course, uh, again, PLC Next and others uh, are starting to do this as well, where they allow you to not only run software like Ignition or Node-RED, but also your own applications, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So now I have shell access. I can get in there. I can write a program in Python or C and run it on, again, these, these same hardware platforms. And I think that's, you know, a very important point of discussion. I think that in part why, well, I guess there, there's two things, but the Linux platform became so successful because it is at the core open source, right? And that's where we're mm -hmm. seeing a lot of the software being developed nowadays going versus maybe a bit less in the manufacturing space or it's just catching on. But right. I think it allows the user to select the platforms or even the software that runs on top of it or even modify the OS. Like you said, you can go into the command line into the shell and then you can make any changes that you'd like. And same for even the Raspberry Pi, you can go and there's mm -hmm. maybe 10 or even more hundreds of different flavors of Linux that you can download depending on your application. And similarly, again, to your, I think you've, you've made this point where you said that you can choose what's right for the application, but you don't necessarily have to be the one developing each and every solution, right? So you can develop right the, the core that makes sense and then let the user based on their application de decide what they want to load uh, in their specific, again, project. So I think like that's a very important aspect of uh, of the success I think that Linux is having. Any, any thoughts? Or yeah, I, I think I, I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. And, and the ch I will tell you, there's a challenge to that. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is in the, in the IT world, if I bought a computer from Dell or whatever, and I was running applications on it and I had issues, who do I call? Right. So I might call Dell, but Dell is saying, oh, you're running, you know, this software AutoCAD on there. You're going to have to call AutoCAD for help for that. And that's just, that's just how it works uh, in the PC world generally speaking. In the automation world, that's not acceptable. We've got to be able to support it. So, you know, anything that we put on our hardware, we have to be able to support to our customers. And that's an important part of us. Our support is free. We've got a, just a top-notch team of support engineers that they themselves have to learn how all these pieces come together and each of those softwares. So that's part of the challenge is, you know, if you load on your own software from, you know, shell access or something like that, you're kind of on your own, but we're going to, you know, obviously we're going to help you. Um, but if we can't, you know, 
we we have a way of getting back to square one, which is terrific. But I, I think the point I want to make there is simply like you start incorporating and evolving these control systems. At the end of the day, in our industry, you still have to support it, uh, and that's mm -hmm. a critical and and not well, in my opinion, and not pay for it. Uh, we, we don't charge for support, um, and uh, you know that's that's an I think an important element. Um, that's that's very different than say some some other approaches. Dave, I so, think. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, but before we do that, Vlad, I think Benson brought up a really good point is that sometimes we evolve too quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And that any company and anyone who has a career as long and storied as you of helping to bring out, you know, all of these amazing new technologies and next generation technologies that we're using. Sometimes you evolve too quickly. And I would imagine that you have a couple of yeah, a couple more examples of technologies that you thought were going to be great, but maybe turned into something that the market wasn't ready for. The market was going a different mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, any suggestions or pieces of advice of where people should look or, or how to kind of develop those products, both looking towards the future, but maybe not betting the farm on it, if you will, um, on one particular technology heading? Well, um, yeah, we've we've run into that where we've been early to market a lot of stuff. I'll be honest, you know, we're, you know Ethan at IO was a clear example, but it, you know, that took care of itself very very quickly. Uh, we did the same thing in in uh, in 2013 when we uh, came out with our first Groove visualization appliance, uh, where you could create you know HTML5 and uh, and actually have a mobile interface to your control systems, but the industry wasn't quite ready for that. And also we were early to market because the technology that we put in there, HTML5, SVG, CSS, JavaScript, for people who care about that stuff, uh, was still very early, right? So it was kind of, you know, cobbling it together to work right. And we worked hard on trying to, you know, abstract all that complicated, you know, technology. Uh, and, it, and it worked, but the market wasn't quite ready for that. You know, it's still the notion of pulling out your handset and connecting your control systems was very, very early. So we, you know, we learned a lot through there, but because we got an early start, it actually developed into something very powerful uh, and a lot of people use today. Uh, but there's other examples. We were probably a little too early to offer an IO system with strictly Linux on it. Not an application mm -hmm. that ran on Linux, just Linux. And you know, that, that was popular for a very, very small segment of the, uh, of the industry. You know, somebody who knew how to, you know, develop in a, in a raw Linux environment, if you will. Uh, so that product was very exciting for a few customers, but never really hit the mainstream. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, examples. Uh, obviously, if there's one lesson, and we get this question a lot, uh, Dave, and I think this kind of hits it on the head. We get the question a lot. You know, we have this uh, the amalgamation, if you will, of all the systems we've done today is, is of course, the Epic. All, everything I've talked about, all the evolutions have amalgamated themselves into a platform like this, including the mobile interface. Mm -hmm. One of the questions we get a lot is, why don't you have a cellular radio on there? We get it all the time. Mm -hmm. And we don't because of what we learned as part of that evolutionary phase. The systems that we put out on the uh, cell towers, for example, on a cellular network with a handheld, the, the, the bag phones, the, the opto systems are still there 22 years later, but they've gone through four iterations of cellular modems in that mm -hmm. time. 
if you have systems out there today that are on a 3G network, guess what? You got to replace them. They're bringing down the 3G network, you know? Uh, and, and so we believe that uh, because we actually did embed cellular radios in our products. And, you know, as soon as we got all the work done, I mean, it'd be hard to, you know, as a, as a manufacturer, a lot of people don't realize just how long it takes to build a product. <laughs> this Epic here mm -hmm. took, you know, six, seven years. And what was happening is we were building these products with a Nokia radio or a Kia Sierra radio or a Sony radio. And as soon as we're ready to take it to market, the radio is obsolete. So mm -hmm. the, the rapid change, and there's, this is kind of an interesting thing. I'm going to bring up a, a quick graphic here um, that uh, Jeff Winters put on one of his posts. I love that guy. He's doing, doing great work. Uh, and it's this, you know, this notion of digital tech technologies, the speed in which they change. And sometimes that speed can, you know, kick you in the butt. Uh, in the case of Sailor, that was what we found early on, and we took a lot of hits for that. It took you know, a lot of effort. So now we believe that you know, decoupling, um, decoupling in, in some cases makes more sense, and that's why we do it. But you know, a lot of our competitors have radios in their, in their devices, but you know, they have finite lives. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully that answers your question, Dave. Yeah. I was going to add to that, Dave, before... Uh we proceed mm -hmm. i guess that, that's an interesting constraint i guess in manufacturing and i think we talked about that with uh, bob meads a little bit because i think the disruption of the supply chains is part of because in manufacturing the life cycle of your products is much longer right than Absolutely. what you'd find in traditional hardware so if you want to order chips that you've used in your hardware maybe a year or two years ago are no longer available all right and so that brings us back again to the same discussion that we even had mm -hmm. uh, offline is that if you control what you're putting into your devices, then you can very easily swap them out or, you know, find alternatives versus if you're buying pre-built boards, then you might be stuck in the supply chain issues. But yeah, I mean, manufacturing in general has a much longer life cycle of product. I guess I your perspective is probably going to be better, but at seven to 10 years from what I've seen is usually what the end users expect at the very least in terms of, you know, getting support. Yeah, I wish it was only seven or 10 years. Uh, <laughs> Some expect longer, but I think it's the bare minimum. Yeah, it is the bare minimum. And, and indeed, when we go out and so we're a vertically integrated company, which mm -hmm. simply means that from design to manufacture, to sell, everything in between, we do here, all of it. We don't use contract manufacturing. We don't use outside design houses. We do it all. And it, while that means it does take a little, a little bit longer to get to market, it means that we know what we bring to market, we have control over. And so to your point you just made about supply chain, you know, we ran into that. You know, first, our, our engineers who develop our products they spend countless you know, weeks, months, identifying products that do have long industrial lead times. So CPUs that have 15 year guaranteed life. Because you know, if, it's, if it's not, we, we can't afford to redesign all the time. Uh, and so that's worked out pretty well. We've selected the right components, it has long, uh, long life uh, that the manufacturer is committing to build. Same thing with the, you know, the the Linux CPUs that are in the back of seat pocket or in the back of the, the airplane in the airplane seats, you know, same thing. Those have to have 15, you know, gotta be guaranteed for 15 years supply. But today, all bets are off. All bets are off. It's a supply chain Armageddon out there. 
And, uh, you know, now if we can't get apart, that, that vertically integrated, everything, us doing everything here has allowed us to design around it. And that's been, uh, you know, we're still shipping all our products today. Yeah, we've got lead times that are now extending, you know, two, three weeks because demand has been fantastic. So, you know, we just got to, we got to build more. But in general, uh, we ran into a problem where one of our old products from 1998, or Ethernet.io, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, one of the versions of it, we could no longer get the Ethernet chip for it. So we redesigned it. And that only happened a few weeks ago. So, you know, that's, that's an important part of that vertical integration is that we can make those changes if we need to and be able to make adjustments based on, on supply chain. Um, and that's a, it's a real problem, but it's given us an advantage. Uh, and, and, you know, if everything that's going on right now with, you know, we're hearing 36, 42, 52 weeks lead times for, for products that people need today. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if I'm a system integrator, I don't get paid until that job's done. And if I'm being held up because I can't get this component or that component, that's no bueno for the system integrator. And, and we understand that. So I uh, no, th- that's amazing. So we're going to continue this conversation. But first, we have some people to thank. So, so Vlad has a non him laughing sound that he's going to play. <laughs> yes, there we go. Okay, perfect. So, so, so season two, we have a non Vlad laughing sound that we're going to play. So we actually have to thank Opto 22, uh, Benson and Opto 22 for sponsoring this theme. So for over 45 years, OEMs, machine builders, systems integrators, IT and operations personnel have looked to Opto 22 for innovative, innovative automation products at an affordable price. Have you heard of OPC? Uh, Opto22 co-wrote the spec as one of the founding members. Ethernet.io, that was them as well. What about PACs? Them again. Uh, we, we can also add in the slew of things that we just talked about with Benson. So today, Opto22 designs and manufactures industrial control and IIoT products like Groove Epic and Groove Rio uh, that bridge the gap between IT and OT following a core philosophy of open uh, standards-based technology. Uh, We can also say that in addition to that, they manufacture in Southern California and Temecula that at least before the pandemic, you could in theory go and see the nearly half a million square foot facility uh, that they have. Uh, You guys can go ahead and take a tour online, we know, because we talked about it with Benson uh, in the first podcast. And as I like to say, uh, one of my favorite strange Opto 22 facts is that you'll get a little sticker on it and it'll say 200% tested because if you got something within the last week, Benson was actually out there uh, over the holiday break going and testing everything at all the way to the top of the range and all the way to the bottom of the range, which is maybe my most favorite industrial automation fact. Uh, so so thank you very much, Benson. Uh, thank you, Opto 22. Um, and as part of that, uh, we are doing a, a giveaway. And so we're going to give, we're giving away a Rio or a Rio learning center, depending upon what the people want. Um, Benson, you're probably the best person in the entire world to describe what a Rio is. Can I, can I hand it over to you and you can tell everyone? Yeah, sure. Sure thing. Let me uh, uh, switch my, uh, uh, my screen back. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, again, just Finishing the evolution, we talked a little bit about Epic, and then now we're putting things like you know CodeSys on these devices. Uh, but Rio, what what's what's special about Rio? It's it's the first of its kind that is a software configurable, software defined I/O system. 
But more than I.O., it has a lot of other capabilities, Node-RED, MQTT, all the things that we've been talking about, and it's cyber secure. But the really cool thing about it is that software configurability. So by giving away one of these guys uh, to your listeners, they're going to get an opportunity to use a, a secure web interface, software configure, whatever I.O. they may have lying around on their desk, a transmitter, a, a discrete signal, a proc sensor, whatever, load it up and, and see what you can do with just sensor data, uh, including sending it to the cloud, including sending it to a database or making it a, a, you know, a, available to a control program running somewhere. Uh, so we're excited to, uh, to give away the, the Learning Center uh, as uh, to one of your lucky, uh, lucky viewers. So, so th thank you for that, Benson. I'll let Vlad do a Vanna White of the Rio that he's got behind him. As I tell everyone that you guys can go to manufacturinghub.live and up at the top bar, you'll, you'll see all of that information on how to go sign up. Um, and that basically just allows us to uh, to get back in contact with you so you can continue to watch uh, some fantastic shows with us. And, and I do want to talk a little bit about the future of control systems and kind of what you think the future is. Mm -hmm. but, but I will say, I think that this show is just going to become more and more expensive because in the time that we've talked with this about Benson, I'm like, I have to have one. And so at some point I will be talking to Benson about, uh, about spending more of my, uh, my hard earned money on, uh, on <laughs> buying more toys and gadgets and what all I'm going to connect with that. Um, but, but thank you, Benson. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, and, and I kind of, I want to talk about the future, right? So Opto 22 has been at the bleeding edge or maybe three inches above the bleeding edge of the industry for most of your career, at least what it looks like, Benson. Mm -hmm. So what can we ask what your projections are? What do you think the future is going to look like in the next five years or, or in 20 years? What do you think the future of controls is going to look like? So I think that uh, this notion of, uh, of taking everything I've said from the, from the networking capabilities, the data democratization, to the cybersecurity, to connectivity, to virtually any physical system, property, sensor, environment, and, and putting that into a format that other applications can, one, understand, and two, do something interesting with is certainly the path we're on now and where things will go. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about cloud computing and why would you use cloud computing and when would you run things uh, at the edge? You know, it, it comes down to a, a number of things and, and it's where the CPU, you know, where the CPU power is, what are the time critical tasks? We can get into obviously a long discussion about those ideas, but ultimately it comes down to what will facilitate those advances. What, what kind of technologies and, and, and products that, that people will understand and will involve, you know, involve the right processes to get implemented? And I think we're, we're very close on that, and there's, uh, there's a lot happening. Uh, one uh, guest that uh, I believe you guys will have on towards the end of the month uh, is going to be working or we'll be talking about this notion of something called a universal PLC, a software-defined PLC. Not something that's purchased or acquired or you know whatever in the traditional sense, you know, where you have to know all of your I/O points ahead of time. You got to know what signals you're working with, but a piece, a, a system that might be able to be software configured to address any kind of application. So I think that there's going to be a lot of progress there. Um, there are some instances of of companies that have attempted to do this and had some success. Delta V comes to mind. 
um, and there's a few others, but they got to be cost effective. And that's where some of the challenges challenges lie. Uh, so I think there's I think you know they, there's a, a saying by uh, actually a lot of people have said this, but software will eat the world. And I agree when that software is running on the right hardware. Um, and I think that's that's going to be um, you know certainly where our focus is uh, is is where that where that world is leading. And then once we get this data easily consumed by other applications, then we'll start to realize the promise of things like AI and machine learning and, and being able to really you know, fine tune our processes and, and increase productivity, increase safety. Uh, and, and I think that kind of comes into, well, what kind of people are gonna do that? You know, what, what kind of career path let's say, uh, is, is going to be able to take advantage of some of these things. And, and in my opinion, it's, it comes down to software engineering in a big way. You know, Opto 22 has been around 48 years and we're largely a company of engineers. And a lot of those are electrical engineers. And of course, mechanical engineers, it was a mechanical engineer who built this thing, um, but double E's and Emmys. But over the past 10 years or so, a lot of the uh, a lot of the folks that engineers that work at Opto now are computer science degrees, or computer engineering, or software engineering, and it's because you know we've kind of established what the CPU is, what the silicon is, uh, you know what the ruggedness needs to be to you know to survive in these challenging environments, and we've selected Linux as a platform because this is amazing room to grow. Now we want to bring the right software people together. And so over the past 10 years, that's largely who, who we're hiring now, CS and uh, software engineers. So I think, you know, it's, software is going to be a, a big part of where we're going. And, and, and the partnerships that we've created have been on the software side. So, you know, if it's inductive automation, it's serious link solutions, it's uh, 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 3S software, uh, CodeSys, you know, those kinds of software uh, capabilities being able to run on a platform like ours gives our customers immense choices and capabilities that until now they've never, I mean, you think if you buy a PLC today, you, you buy the software for that mm -hmm. PLC and actually you have to pay for it in a lot of cases and, and it's very tightly coupled. But what if you could buy a PLC and run whatever software you wanted to run on it, right? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I can buy one phone, but run all kinds of software on it. That's where I think we're leading to, you know, strictly from a, from a hardware and, uh, you know, automation perspective in the world that we live in. That's where we want to get to. We want to be the smartphone of industrial automation in that, in the sense of being able to run whatever software you choose to get your job done. No, I agree. I, I think that. that's the, that's the example of code assist, right? Like it's an interesting mm -hmm piece of manufacturing software that you can deploy on different platforms again that suits your needs from very small you can run it on a raspberry pi and you can run it on very uh, mm -hmm. rugged industrial pcs and everything in between right so that's uh, certainly something that i think will change the way we do manufacturing because you can redeploy into different uh, systems depending on your needs absolutely and you know if you write a, a program in codesys frankly you can run it on a lot of different plcs we just want to be the best one you're running on. But the other thing that we take get an advantage of is CodeSys or 3S software. They have hundreds of engineers developing CodeSys all of the time. And, you know, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't hire those hundreds of engineers for Opto. It doesn't, it's not really part of our model. 
but we get to take advantage and our customers get to take advantage of all that innovation that CodeSys is doing. Same with the folks up in Folsom in inductive automation. They got hundreds of engineers that are fine tuning and making that software the very best it can be. And our customers benefit from that. So that's, that's really the, the kind of the mode that we're in is, is we wanna build the very best hardware uh, that you could possibly put into an environment, make it easy to use and have a lot of capabilities. No, absolutely. And Dave, I've got many more questions for Benson. I really <laughs> like the, you know, the slight tangent towards careers because I do think that there's going to be more and more opportunities for, you know, software and computer science engineers in, uh, in manufacturing. That being said, do you want to jump into some rapid fire questions before we spend another hour asking Benson all these technical questions? And again, there, there's a lot of them. I think, uh, you know, we went through the history of PLCs and that was extremely interesting. And I've had many questions about protocols and OS systems and, you know, how it all ties into where we are today. But I think we'll certainly have to save that for a another discussion, Benson. I think there's a lot of really interesting topics. And the other one that I also want to mention is cybersecurity. I think you've mm -hmm. uh, mentioned it a couple of times that your data being secure is an important point. And again, I think we can have a crucial it, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, especially with uh, some of the recent events. But again, I think as the technology involves, there's going to be other risks and potentially different ways of, um, you know, breaching the systems and cybersecurity is a very important and I think growing area in, in many different ways. But uh, no, Dave, uh, do you want to get us started with some of those questions we have for Benson? A absolutely. So, so again, thank you, Benson, and thank you, Vlad, for kicking off season two with my favorite thing that you say every time is, I have so many more questions for you. <laughs> this, this is just the beginning. Uh, but no, Benson, so, uh, so you came on last time and you gave us a couple of good book recommendations. Uh, I know you've got a couple of basically brand new books out uh, as recommendations. Can you let everyone know what those are, please? Yeah, sure. Um, the first one is, you know, kind of a business book, I guess, but uh, it, the, the book is called Switch. Uh, and it's by, uh, I think, David and Ch uh, Chip Heath. Uh, and the reason why I, I'm recommending this book is these guys have written, written a fair amount of really terrific books. Uh, again, more in the, in the business realm. But this one, I think, is kind of unique to, to what we're dealing with today. And that is change. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about technology a lot today in, uh, in this call. Uh, we didn't talk so much about processes, but processes and people are such an important part of this, and and people generally abhor change. Let's take aside the fact that we're in a very risk-averse industry for good reason. You know, we do something wrong, somebody gets hurt. Uh, so that recognize that, but change is hard, uh, especially change to processes or a change into the way people think. And so this book does a, a an interesting job of uh, you know kind of a prescription for how you address change, and it's based on a lot of research. Uh, it's based on a lot of uh, you know reports of real experience uh, and so on. And I just found it a, a fun read. It's it's pretty short, and I uh, that's one of my recommendations. Uh, especially as all of us are faced with, uh, you know, these changing environments, digital transformation, uh, industry 4.0, and so on. I think it can help us all. Um, the second one is uh, I haven't read. Um, I'll put that out there because the book is so new. Uh, it's called The Book of Code Sys. And The Book of Code Sys is a brand new book that has just been released by Jack Pratt, who is a uh, 
Uh, he's been a long-standing member of the CodeSys environment for many, many uh, decades, probably. Uh, you know, he used to be the president of U.S. operations for CodeSys. Now he's doing his uh, his own thing. He's helping others uh, understand and take advantage of some of the interesting things you can do with CodeSys, including object-oriented programming and and so on. Uh, the book is brand new. And it's on Amazon. It's expensive, and Jack has done a pretty good job of trying to explain why. Uh, but uh, you know, flipping just through the book briefly, uh, it's it's pretty compelling. And uh, the other reason why I'm recommending it is because one of our top uh, software developers here at Opta 22, he's been here for I don't know about as long as I have. Uh, uh, he's uh, his name is Jim Turner, and he is uh, was a contributor to the book. Uh, and Jim has indeed been uh, one of the key developers, not only for our Groove Managed software, but also for our CodeSys integration. So pretty excited about that. No, no, thank you. And uh, I would like to point out, as, as I told Benson when we talked about the book of CodeSys, is that most good pieces of knowledge, especially when you buy them in book form, are, are expensive. And I think we could list, you know, 10 or 20 very expensive industrial automation books. Mm -hmm. And for, for most of us, the, the cost of a book should not stop us from buying it and trying to learn something, especially if it's, you know, as potentially groundbreaking and life-changing as CODASIS is for many of us uh, within the industry. So thank you. Thank you for both of those, Benson. We, we will have to do a follow-up at some point after, right. you know, three or four people in the entire world read the book of CODASIS right. and we're able to, uh, we're able to do some sort of book review because I think it just came out uh, last month or, or, or a couple of days ago, uh, but, but yeah, thank you for that. And so before we jump into a bit of career advice questions, um, my question to you is, you know, who should reach out to, uh, who should reach out to you? Who should reach out to Opto 22 in general, Benson? Uh, if they're looking for a job. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, is, if that's your question, yeah, we're hiring. Uh, we'd love okay. to have you join uh, Opto 22. Uh, you know, we've, we are a rapidly, a uh, growing company more than ever. These uh, the, the the group products have, have proved to be uh, extremely powerful uh, uh, products for our customers. Not because they're powerful CPUs or because they can handle a lot of I/O or any of that. It's because they solve real problems, and uh, and they're they they can be a joy to use. And it's backed by Opto Twenty Two support. So we're hiring in our support department. We're hiring pre-sales engineers. We're hiring software engineers. I mean, uh, it's it's a terrific company to work for. Um, and we're very, very flat. We're a very flat organization. Uh, there is no middle management of any kind. And that was, you know, a, a big part of, uh, of Bob Ingman creating Opto in 1974 is, you know, he came from a big company and he was like, I don't want any part of, you know, corporate hierarchy. Let's just keep this simple, <laughs> hire smart people, give them the, you know, what we need to do and let's go get it done. And don't be afraid to fail. Uh, try new things. Uh, you know, build the best product, highly reliable, backed by, you know, by, by our support. Um, and if that's the kind of thing interests, uh, interests any of your uh, viewers, uh, check out our careers page for sure. That is, that is a very good pitch. And then I would say on the other side, if you guys are looking for U.S. made hardware that is in stock and you can get support, uh, the, those people can probably also reach out to you guys uh, because you've got, you know, one or two or 500 products that could uh, that could help them get up and running. Yep. I mean, even all perfect, all the way back to those first 22 relays, we, we still sell those. I too. love it. 
So. I love it. it. It's one of my favorite Opto 22 trivia questions. We'll have to have Opto 22 trivia night uh, towards right. the end of the year. Uh, but we'll all get together for a conference and we'll have Opto 22 bingo going on. But oh, no, so Vlad, Vlad, I'm going to let you go ahead and ask Benson for some career advice because I know you're, you're chomping at the bit to uh, to go. So So please. Sure. So the third question, Benson, is we'd like to ask for a piece of career advice and we leave it uh, purposefully Mm -hmm. open. So, you know, it could be early career, it could be transitioning, you know, maybe from engineering into management. Uh, It could be for a student uh, or anything in between. What uh, what do you have for our listeners today? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting because I have this conversation basically daily with my 17 year old son. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what what do you want to do? What what intrigues you? What what makes you happy working on it? Right. Because if you can find something that makes you happy, it's not work anymore. And, uh, you know, the the good news is he's he's done all kinds of things. He's he's done data science. He's done physics. He's done. He's deep in electrical engineering now. Uh, he's done programming. He built his own website. And I'm, I'm using my son as an example because that's what you have to find that. You have to find what makes you happy. Now, if being a manager makes you happy, then, you know, clearly you probably get an MBA or whatnot. Um, there's not a lot of that here at Opto. I'll be frank. You know, we're flat management style. Uh, but if you're looking to cor- climb the corporate ladder, those, those, those things might be important to you. Um, but in general, it's, it's truly finding something that, uh, that makes you happy. Now, obviously, we, get, we, we have a career because you know, we have to pay the bills. We have to you know, earn an income. Uh, and in that case, you know, I think that uh, anything, as, as I mentioned earlier, anything that might be in the software realm uh, is, is pretty interesting, especially in our industry. You know, one of the things that uh, is, is kind of unique about the industrial automation market uh, or in this this space is it, it always has been about oh do you have PLC experience can you program in ladder or structured text or di- and whatever um, and I think that's important no question about it but a lot of that is now coming down to maintaining systems or extracting new value out of systems and I think a lot of that can be done without necessarily being a hardcore PLC programmer. Now, if you're building a new machine or something like that, maybe now's the time to look at alternatives to traditional PLC technology. Hmm. Now, obviously, that benefits me, but and not why I'm saying it. But it's it's time to you know make sure that we are looking at the technologies that may help us do new things and give us a path moving forward. So, if you're building a greenfield you know machine or a greenfield plant. Take a look at everything. There's a lot that's happening right now in our industry, just as that uh, graph I showed you earlier. Anything that's digital is moving rapidly, uh, but is still rooted in this notion of being able to be secure and reliable systems that will continue to operate day in and day out for decades. So that's you know that's one of the career advice I'd be is is focus on the on that software extracting value out of existing systems yet still being able to maintain them. And I think that's uh, that's one path. No, really I like what you're the, doing, Valor. I appreciate that, Benson. I think there's, there's certainly a lot of uh, truth to, I would say, engineers being maybe pigeonholed in, in certain situations mm-hmm. to like a single solution. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously there's many factors to that, but uh, I certainly agree that there should be more experimentation. At the very least, you know, trying out and evaluating different options, I think, should always be on the table. 
Right. Dave, any final thoughts? As as I said, I I think we can keep going, but I I definitely think we should be respectful of uh, everyone. And everyone's time. Absolutely. So, so, so two thoughts before we wrap up, Benson. Now, one, I think that's great advice. I wish 17 year old Dave listened to his parents, hopefully um, more <laughs> than your, your son listens to, uh, to, to you. Um, so, so first that uh, second, I, I'd like to point out that I think we broke LinkedIn streaming. Uh, we, we had a few people uh, comment in the chat that they, that, that we were, you know, buffering or, or they couldn't get us to load. So oh, congratulations, Benson. I, I think you're the first person who has uh, helped us break that. Um, we will go ahead and post links to uh, to, to the YouTube and, and everywhere else that we stream. For instances where uh, where Benson breaks the internet, so so thank you for that, Benson. <laughs> um, but but no, again, th- this has been a fantastic episode. We are going to continue next week. Tim Wilborn is going to come on, and if you guys don't know Tim, he's got he's got what well one he's going to have some fantastic career advice because he is big into STEM and STEAM, especially in uh, in schools. And two, he's probably going to have a slightly different, uh, slightly different viewpoint on maybe how far and how fast we should be pushing uh, control systems. Uh, and so that is, I mean, it's always a great conversation. If you have not heard Tim, you you, you guys will absolutely uh, love that. So uh, again, th- thank you all. If you have not already, please follow us on LinkedIn. Please subscribe. If you listen to us on podcasts, uh, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And apparently you can rate people on Spotify podcasts as well. Uh, so please go ahead and do all of those things and download Benson a thousand times uh, so he can break the internet uh, uh, yet again. Um, until next week, we'll see you guys all soon. And thank sign up for that Groove much. Rio Learning Center. You're going to love it. So sign up for that. Oh. Yes. Can't wait to give that away. <laughs> All right. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, you guys. Thank I you, appreciate everyone. the opportunity.